1 Timothy 4, 6 through 10. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, now as we come before you to seek your help, we pray for your Spirit that his work be actively involved in our hearts right now, Father, that each of us would be drawn to want to know you, want to hear what you say, and, and want to more and more have our lives reflect the truth of your word. So Lord, give us faith, give us understanding, and may your spirit poke and prod us in the very areas where we need the most help to submit our lives to you in faith and repentance. We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. In my daily Bible reading, I've been in the gospel of Matthew, um, and just a few days ago, I came to Matthew 25, and in that chapter, Matthew records three different but related stories of Jesus. In each of the stories, Jesus is challenging his followers with the grave importance of making sure they are preparing themselves for his return. The three stories are known as the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, and the final one isn't really a parable, it's a description of the final judgment in which verse 32 says, King Jesus will gather all the nations before him and separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Some will be given eternal life and others will be condemned to hell. And if you actually think about what we are being told there in Matthew 25, you will recognize how crucially important today is in light of that day. How you live today, the choices that you make today, directly impact what your experience will be like on that day, on the day of judgment, leading to how you will spend eternity. So in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, 14 through 30, the master is going away on a long journey. And before he leaves, he calls his three servants to him and gives them each a different number of talents or a good portion of money to see how they could use it uh, to make more by the time he returns. And after a long time, the master returned, and he called his three servants to him again to settle accounts with them. And this, of course, was Judgment Day 
before his servants. They stand before his master. For two out of the three servants who stood before the master on that day, they heard the words, well done, good and faithful servant. But for the one servant who didn't do anything with the resources that the master entrusted to him before he left, the master did not call him good, but instead called him a wicked and slothful servant. We're told that servant was then cast out into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which of course is the way that Jesus describes hell. Now, if you are someone who considers yourself to be a Christian and therefore one of the Lord's servants, when you read and think about that passage, well, your one main personal application is is what? It's what do I need to do in order to hear the Lord say on judgment day, well done, good and faithful servant. That should be an important question for you no matter what your relationship is with God today. The day is coming when you will stand before him and will have to give an account of how you used the life that he gave to you. What you did with the mind that he gave you, the body that he gave you, the skills that he gave you, and the relationships and the work that he gave you to do. For everyone who has come to recognize their need for a Savior and that Jesus Christ is that Savior, that he is their Lord, will they long to hear their master say on that day, well done, good and faithful servant. That was the great desire of the Apostle Paul and it was the same for Timothy Here in our text this morning from 1 Timothy, we find Paul telling Timothy that good servants of Christ Jesus do not just happen. We don't just wake up one morning and find that we are good servants. It doesn't magically happen when we officially become a member of a local church or when we might agree to serve in some particular area of ministry within our church. What we see here is that Christians become good and faithful servants because they train themselves to be good servants of Christ Jesus. They work at it. There's effort involved. So we see that here in in 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 10, that leaders and members of God's household must train to be good servants of Christ Jesus. That's our main theme from this paragraph. Leaders and members of God's household must train to be good servants of Christ Jesus. Now, maybe you think uh, good servants of Christ Jesus are just, they're just born that way. There's just, you know, they were born into the right family. Uh, they had good parents. They had a good upbringing. Uh, or there's just something about their personality that makes them especially gifted to be good and faithful servants of Christ. Well, Of course, someone's family and personality do play a role, but as we see here, even if you don't come from a godly family or have a particularly vibrant personality, you can still become a good servant of Christ. Paul shows us here that in these verses that a good servant of Christ Jesus is, first, 
nourished by good teaching, that's in verses 6 and 7, then strengthened by godly training, that's the second half of verse 7 through 9, and thirdly, a servant of Christ Jesus or a good servant of Christ Jesus is entirely confident in God the Savior. So those are our our three points here from our message uh, on your uh, uh, inserts and your bulletins if you want to follow along. Uh, First we'll look at how a good servant of Christ Jesus is nourished by good teaching. Verses 6 and the first part of verse 7. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. So verse 6 begins with something that should be very instructive for every member of a local church, from the pastor and elders down to someone who is just visiting or checking out the church uh, on a particular Sunday. As I've mentioned before, this letter is addressed to Timothy, whom the Apostle Paul had left to lead and teach the young church in Ephesus after Paul had been serving in that role for over two years. He's giving Timothy here uh, instructions, but also expects Timothy to share this letter with the whole church. So Paul is writing it to Timothy, knowing full well that others will be listening in. It's kind of like when I, as a father, uh, give instructions to my oldest child at the dinner table, but I'm saying it or I'm doing it in such a way that I'm also instructing the three younger children who I know are also listening to what I say. So, so Paul here gives a clear indication uh, in verse 6 of just what a faithful pastor is to be doing for his local church. He is to put these things before the brothers. Now the word for brothers there in our translation is inclusive, meaning it refers to brothers and sisters, both the male and the female members of the church family. So Timothy is to prepare and place the teaching in this letter on the gospel, on the different roles of men and women, on the qualifications of, uh, for church leaders, and, and the warnings against false teaching. He's supposed to place this before the church, much like a chef would prepare a nutritious, filling meal and place it before his guests at a dinner table. He says, put these things before the brothers and sisters. This is what pastors are called to do. Pastors are called to read and study the scriptures and then place the truth of God's word before the church through sermons and Bible teaching. So if Timothy does this, and if your pastor does this, he will be, as it says, a good servant of Christ Jesus. If pastors simply fulfill their calling, their responsibility before God to faithfully study and know the scriptures and set the truths of the gospel before the people God has called them to serve, they will be good servants. But good servants don't just happen. Good servants of Christ Jesus are not just born. They are made. So what does it take to become a good servant of the Lord. And pastors aren't the only ones called to be good servants of Jesus. Every Christian is called to serve the Lord with their lives, as Matthew 25 makes clear, with that teaching on 
on the judgment. So, uh, first, verse 6 tells us good servants are nourished by good teaching. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Uh, the word trained there is it's a good translation, but, but just not the best translation. It is a different word. If you want to look at the rest of the passage here, verses 7 and 8, Paul also talks about training there, but he uses a different word for training in 7 and 8 as he uses in, in verse 6. Here the word in verse 6 uh, refers more to being nourished. Being nourished. You know, like, like that of a mother nursing an infant, uh, which from what we know about Timothy's story, Paul was probably referring to how he was raised. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, in, in three, uh, chapter 3, verse 14, Paul encourages him to continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. And then he says in verse 15, which directly refers to how he was nourished in the words of faith, he says there, 2 Timothy 3.15, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, there Paul mentioned Timothy's grandmother Lois and mother Eunice, who also had saving faith and must have influenced and nourished Timothy from the time he was very young in the truth of the Holy Scriptures. So, uh, to be a good servant of Christ Jesus, you must be nourished in the words of the faith. Now, Timothy was nourished by his, his mother and grandmother. You may have been nourished by your parents, or maybe you weren't. But you can still be nourished by God's truth. You can still put yourself under God's teaching through his word. Make sure you're doing that. So to be a good servant of Christ Jesus, you must be nourished in the words of the faith, in the words of eternal life found in the Bible. Well, at the same time, Paul says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. You know, good mothers will not just give their children junk food to eat. That is not proper nourishment. Mothers of newborns will not just fill their baby's bottles with Dr. Pepper. They will not just, just feed their toddlers Cheetos and gummy bears. Now, it might fill their tummies. The kids might really enjoy it. But it will not be nourishing. It will not lead to strong bones and a fully developed brain and healthy organs. Kids need proper nourishment to grow strong and to be healthy. And Christians also need to be nourished in God's words and good doctrine, that is, faithful interpretation of God's word, not irreverent, silly myths, or as your translations might have it, godless myths, worthless stories, and old wives' tales. Stories and teachings about life or about God and how we are to live that are simply not found or not based in Scripture. Horoscopes fit into that category. 
legends fit into that category. Even, even some of the very popular teaching that's out there right now from, from teachers and preachers claiming that you can receive health and wealth and power from God if you just pray the right way or believe a certain way or say the right words to God. It's all irreverent, silly myths. I remember over 20 years ago, a certain little book came out telling you, this is how you are to pray. Pray in this very way. Pray this very prayer, and God will give you blessing upon blessing. Irreverent, silly myths. Nourish your hearts and minds on God's word, and don't waste your time with that stuff. Now, we we can hear in these verses an encouragement for parents and and churches like ours, can't we? Let us follow the example of Timothy's mother and grandmother and make sure that we are nourishing our children while we have them in the house, in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. Let's be very intentional about teaching our children the gospel. Teach them who God is, who we are as, as sinners, and that we desperately need his grace to save us. Tell them God has provided for our salvation through Jesus Christ, his son. Let's teach them who Jesus is, that he calls us to repent and believe the gospel and then to walk in his ways, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. Let's make sure that we as a church are nourishing our children and young people in the truth of God's word and not just trying to entertain them for an hour but to feed them, to do our best to help them to know the Lord. Let's not give them junk food. And there is a lot of junk food out there, a lot of irreverent silly myths. Let's instead commit ourselves to patiently nourishing them in the gospel. And secondly, the second half of verse 5 to verse 9, a good servant of Christ Jesus is strengthened by godly training. So let's look at those, those, those verses here. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Most of you know that I'm a, a baseball fan. And this Thursday is a special holiday for baseball fans. It's opening day. Baseball season officially begins. First scheduled games, and I've been looking forward to this coming day for a long time. But for the past month, uh, all of the Major League Baseball teams have been going through spring training in Florida and Arizona. And uh, my favorite team is the Milwaukee Brewers, and, and on their YouTube channel... Uh, They have posted a few videos of some of the things that they are going through with the players during spring training practices. And now, I I also have been coaching uh, youth baseball for the past few years here in Stanton. Last year, I was coaching uh, 9, 10, and 11-year-olds. And what was striking to me was that these professional baseball players, some of whom are making tens of millions of dollars to play in this upcoming season, we're doing some of the very same basic baseball drills that I do with 9, 10, and 11-year-olds. Fielding grounders, fielding fly balls, running around the bases, hitting off baseball tees, 
taking batting practice in the cage, or very, very basic things. And every major leaguer, the best players on the planet, go through this training every year before the season. And it just goes to show the great necessity we have of training. You will not be prepared for the challenges ahead unless you train yourselves for them. That's what we're seeing in spring training with baseball players. That's what we're seeing here in this passage. That's what we are also you know, told here in these verses. As we see Paul say again to Timothy and to the church, train yourself for godliness. While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life, also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Paul is comparing athletic training here with spiritual training. He says bodily training, that's of some value. The physical training that Major League Baseball players are, are going through in spring training, it does have some value. It, it will help them to play 162 baseball games this year. If you have physical exercise, uh, if, you have, if you have a daily exercise routine or a weekly routine, uh, and you try to, 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 to stick with that, you try to, to, to exercise your body to stay healthy, it is of some value to you. It is, it is not a bad thing. It may help you to live a little longer. It may help you to even enjoy those years even, even better. But training for godliness is of far greater value. It will be of value to you in, in all things, it says here. It will not only help you through the present life, it will also help to prepare you to enjoy the life that is to come. Life in the eternal kingdom of God in the new heavens and the new earth. So let's consider just, just what we are called to train for here. What are we seeking to become with our training? Well, train yourself for godliness. Godliness. Now, how many of us wake up in the morning and think about what we could do today to grow in godliness? What is godliness? How do we know if we have it? Or how do we know how to, how to pursue it, how to train ourselves for godliness? Well, you could say that godliness is what First Timothy is all about. All that we've been reading about in First Timothy is focused on godliness, being godly people, living a godly life. That's what 1 Timothy is focused on because uh, the word for godliness is used 15 times in all of the New Testament and nine of those 15 times are found right here in 1 Timothy. It's also used four, four other times in the book of 2 Peter. So if you want to learn more about godliness, maybe take a, a look at 2 Peter this week to help you to understand godliness a little better. From the word itself, we can understand that godliness is a way of life that is centered on God. A way of life that's centered on God. It's a life that revolves around the worship and service of God. Philip Ryken, a former pastor and now president at Wheaton College, he says that godliness comes from the awareness that all of life is lived before the face of God. Having that awareness. He goes on to say, the godly person walks with God at home, at work, at church, at school, at play. 
Godliness includes godly thoughts, godly words, and godly behavior. It is a God-centered life. So are you a godly person? Are you growing in godliness? Is this the only time of the week that you're thinking about God? If you are growing in, in godliness, then you, are, then you will have a great reverence for God that extends to every area of your life, from what you watch on television, to what you scan through in your social media, to what you talk about with your friends and coworkers, to how you treat your spouse and your children, to what you think about when you get up in the morning. A godly person has truly experienced the Christian conversion from a self-centered life of seeking to please only yourself to a God-centered life of seeking to honor God and serve Christ with your time, talents, and treasures. So are you someone then who is pursuing godliness? If you are a parent with children still in the home, are you seeking to lead them in a godly way of life? Is your home a haven for godliness? Well, note here also that, that training for godliness will lead to great blessings. Look at verse 8. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, yes, there are great challenges to living a life of godliness. It is a life of self-denial. It is a life of fighting against temptations. It is a life of obedience, which will include honestly confessing sins to one another. It will be a life of taking responsibility for your actions, admitting when you are wrong, being patient with others, forgiving others when they sin against you, and being misunderstood and put down by our secular anti-Christian society. It will mean making some difficult choices. Maybe it will mean not having your kids participate in a certain sport or activity because it will keep them from being able to attend Sunday school or worship on the Lord's Day. That's, hard, that's a hard choice. Pursuing godliness will not be a cakewalk, but it will result in great blessings that no other way of life can offer. And remember, our present life is only a mist that appears for a moment and then it's gone. Compared to eternity and heavenly glory, which the Lord will provide for all of his people. Proverbs 22.4 says, The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. That is the promise. That is the hope set before those who commit themselves to training for godliness. That is what is to come for all those who put their hope in Christ and train themselves for godliness. Finally, in verse 10, a good servant of Christ Jesus is entirely confident in God the Savior. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Here we are, clearly shown that we are not to think that all of our training ourselves for godliness will earn salvation for us. You know, going to church, reading God's word, praying regularly, fearing the Lord, obeying his word, they do not earn our place in heaven. 
That's not the reason why the Christian will seek to grow in godliness. Rather, we seek to grow in godliness because we have our hope in the living God. That's why. We have our hope in the living God for salvation. That's why we are training for godliness. So know this, brothers and sisters. Christians do not place their hope in themselves. We do not depend upon our own strength. We don't just dig down deep and find in ourselves the wherewithal to do the hard things in obedience or self-control. For Christians, to really be Christian, we look away from ourselves and we set our hope on the living God. We look to him for the help we need. We look to him for the grace that we need to, to be forgiven of our sins. We look to him for the mercy we need to get through each day. We look to him for the strength to endure trials and tribulations. We look to him for the grace we need to love our neighbors and forgive those who sin against us and bear patiently with the weak and show kindness to those who frustrate us and be gentle when our sinful flesh would rather be harsh with others. We know we are prone to sin. We know we've been guilty of living, thinking, speaking, and acting in ungodly ways. And so our hope is not in ourselves, but in Christ. Our hope is in Christ, in whose righteousness covers all those who believe in him. As J.B. Phillips translates this verse, he says we are to place our whole confidence in the living God. And Paul reminds us of just who this living God is, whom we are to put our hope and our, and our faith in. It says, he is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now, the way this is translated, it, it can lead to some confusion. Uh, like, like Paul is saying, you know, God gives salvation to everyone, and everyone who stands before him in judgment will hear him say, you know, come into the joy of your master. And that none will hear what Jesus clearly says some will hear in Matthew 25, 41. Depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So that's what Jesus says. So is Paul contradicting Jesus here in this verse? As well as contradicting, you know, what he says in many other places in his letters? Well, no, of course not. That's, that's not what he's saying. That's not how we are to understand this sentence. Paul is just making clear, we know who God is. He is referring to God in much the same way as he did back in chapter 2. If you want to just peek back at chapter 2, verses 3 and 5, there he said, this is good, it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So, who is this God that we're to put our hope in? He's God our Savior. He is the Savior. He is the only Savior. And Jesus Christ, his Son, is the one and only mediator between God and man. If anyone wants to be saved, he must come to God, the Savior, through faith in Jesus Christ. He must set his hope on the living God. What Paul is saying here is that God is the Savior of all people, that is to say, he is a savior of those who believe. By using the word especially here, Paul is adding a limitation to his more general statement. God is a savior of all people. 
but you cannot be saved by him unless you believe, unless you come to him through the only mediator, through Christ. That's the only way that you can be entirely confident that you are saved. So we are to have the same confession as a psalmist in Psalm 33, 18-22. There we read, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. And then the psalmist closes with a brief prayer. At the very end, he says, Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Psalm 33, 18-22. So let's think back now where we began. In Matthew 25, in the parable of the talents, Remember what the two servants were commended for by their master. They were commended for their faithfulness in how they used the resources their master entrusted to them. Each of them was blessed with resources, that, and they, they, they sought to make them grow. They were not satisfied with what they had been given. They, they, they were not satisfied with, 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 with just where they were. They sought to grow. You could say that they sought to grow in godliness. For it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. But we also need to consider why the third servant in that parable was condemned. He was condemned for simply being satisfied with what he had and for greatly misjudging his master. He saw no need to grow, no need to seek to increase the blessing that he had already been given. Putting it in categories of 1 Timothy, he saw no need to train himself for godliness. So what about us? What about you? Are you seeking to grow in godliness? Are you training yourself in the fear and knowledge of the Lord and his ways? Are you putting sin to death more and more, and moving toward and not away from more active obedience to the Lord's ways? Are you trusting in and depending upon God, the Holy Spirit, to empower you to do His will? If so, then on, the, on that day, on that day as we sung about, on that day, you stand before him, you will hear the wonderful words of the servant, of the, the, the wonderful words that every servant of Christ longs to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come, enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we uh, are humbled by your word. And we pray for your help. But I pray for each soul here today 
that has heard your word. Father, that you would put in them a desire, a longing to want to hear you tell them, well done, good and faithful servant. So it help them then to train, to train themselves for godliness, to seek to grow in the knowledge of God and obedience to, to your ways. And Lord, we look to you, we, we hope in you for our salvation, for our, our standing with you, and for the power that we need to live in this way. And we are confident you are able to provide it for us. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.